um, we have three questions that were emailed, and one of them is from someone here, if you don't mind identifying yourself, if you do mind, it's okay, um, who has to leave a little early. And it was a long question, but the essential question is, if everything is God's will, and our only job is to surrender to it, to both good and bad situations, then where does our own will to progress towards a goal come in? This is one of those classic questions that gets asked many, many, many times. I believe the last letter in the book In Divine Friendship is about free will and God's will. I, it's a very complicated answer, and I'm not honestly sure I understand what Swami's written there, but you can try. I, I, there's a lot of different ways to answer this question, but there's no answer that is ever satisfactory. Um, this one um, didn't exactly pose it on the level of what is predetermined by karma. This one twisted it in a slightly different way. Much of the time, the reason we can't answer this question is the way it's phrased, it's unanswerable. This one has a false premise. If everything is God's will and our only job is to surrender to it, both good and bad, then, well, it isn't our only job to surrender to it. I mean, our job is to face into whatever challenges God puts in front of us and to learn the karmic lessons that those situations are asking of us. What we're here to do is we're here to resolve our karma. And what our karma is, one way to think about it is, we are meant to be in the center of reality with perfectly calm, perfectly clear, perfectly in tune with the flow of life itself. But we are always, we are always liking and disliking things all the time. And we do this for many incarnations, and these likes and dislikes become the binding force. And we, we are confronted continually in our incarnations with opportunities to choose to be centered in the face of challenge, to be filled with faith in the face of challenge, to be courageous in the face of challenge. And that's what our actual job is. So that's the exact opposite of saying we're just supposed to surrender to what happens. We're supposed to cooperate with what happens. We're supposed to respond appropriately to what happens. But the passivity implied in this question that we're just supposed to surrender to it and then therefore, what, where place does effort have? Because the effort we have to put out is to hold ourselves centered in courageous faith in the presence of God within us no matter how the storm batters against us. And you can't hold yourself centered unless you're putting out a tremendous amount of energy to keep yourself there. You all had tremendous rainstorms here. We were down in Goa and we had some really fabulous rainstorms there too. And literally you had to lean into the storm. You couldn't just, you know, you, the storm was so strong, the wind was so strong, you had to walk against it. You couldn't just surrender to it and have anything happen that was desirable to happen. We can't just let the, the vagaries of karma just kick us from one end of life to the other. We have to stand unshaken amidst the crash of breaking worlds, as Hellmaster put it. 
when I was speaking here the other night, I was also referring to something in Swami's Gita commentary where he talks about the, the purpose of life is to transcend the influence of the three gunas and the two that are really the ones we have to work with are tamoguna, which just causes us to sink back into listless unconsciousness, and rajoguna, which causes us to run around in useless circles so that we can be centered in our higher self instead of compelled by all of our wrong thinking. And God's will is that we face the challenge. God's will is not that we just allow ourselves to be like a tumbleweed in the wind. When we surrender to God's will, it means that we accept what has been given to us and we respond appropriately. And we don't, I mean, this is not mysterious. Look at the lives of the saints. That's why the saints incarnate. They incarnate to show us on a common sense, practical level what it actually looks like to be a spiritual person. Otherwise, we get so confused by words like surrender and free will and predetermined. But you look at the Yogananda's life, if you saw, if you, any of you saw the movie Awake or have listened to Swami Kriyananda speak or read his biography of Yogananda, I mean, I put these out because Master's own autobiography doesn't say as much of who he is. Swami's book, The Path. I mean, Master was a powerful force and he was determined he didn't just passively say, oh God, whatever you want. He stood up to every challenge that came and never stopped. There's 220,000 words in Lightbearer about how Swami never, never stopped with his determined willpower to serve his guru and to bring light into this world. What we're surrendering to actually is the necessity to do that because that's what we resist. We just want it to be easy. We just want it to just happen automatically. And that's what we have to give up. We have to surrender our, our passive uh, hope that we don't have to try so hard. Master's perfect prayer, he said, I will reason, I will will, I will act, but guide thou my reason, will, and activity to the best course in everything. And that's the prayer. And how much is predetermined, how much is free will, which is not what's really asked here. But Master someplace said, almost everything is predetermined, and that part which isn't can only be discerned by very advanced souls. <laughs> Vivekananda said, the level of consciousness that asks the question is incapable of understanding the answer, which I thought was the best way of getting out of the question that I know of. In, in, the, ask, in the book Ask Asha, actually, when this question was asked, to me. I put it this way, I have no idea what's free will, I have no idea what's predetermined. Much of the time I don't even really know what God is trying to get me to do. But I can tell that my actions make a difference. So there's a certain point at which we just have to drop all the sort of exalted philosophy and use our common sense. If you get up in the morning and instead of getting out of bed you just start running a Netflix series and have chocolates delivered and just lie there all day and watch television and eat chocolate, do that for a month or two, you'll be, it's pretty obvious to you this does not bring you happiness. So even if you don't know what's predetermined and what's, free, what's God's will, we can tell that certain actions bring certain results. 
and it's we have to stay we have to stay within the realm of our experience and there's another question which to me has always seemed helpful what difference would it make because very often the the and I'm not going to uh, say this to the person who sent this one but very often when this question is asked is looking for a reason not to put out energy or that the underlying desire is not to put out energy so I'm going to be philosophically confused when I was giving the class on how to know and trust your inner guidance which was a few days ago and I talked about how God's will was easy to know I just didn't want to know it so what we have to do is sometimes pretty self-evident in front of us but we're hoping that if we can create enough intellectual confusion we won't have to do it and that's sort of like why should I try anyway well there has to be a part of common sense Sister, a mother, a mother Teresa of Avila St. Teresa of Avila she set up these cloistered convents in whatever the 14 or 1500s whenever she lived cloistered convents, perpetual cloister 12 women together Teresa said great care must be exercised in selecting those 12 women who are going to have to live together for the rest of their lives and she said above all she said look for common sense she said everything else including the love of God can be acquired (laughs) so there's also a certain like what difference would it make really and it's not like I don't know what I'm supposed to do in the morning it's not like I can't see the results of my own actions Um, we have to be practical in our idealism Swamiji said so I hope that helps all right do we have a, a question in the room that somebody wants to ask before I go to another written question? Someone? Yes, Divisha. So like you mentioned, uh, most of us, a lot of times, we know what we should do, what the right thing is for us to do. But a lot of times there's a resistance to doing it. So why, why does that happen so often and how do you overcome it? question is, even though we may know what the right thing is to do, there's a resistance to it. You know, Arjuna asked... Um, Krishna that question why again why do we constantly even though we know what the upward path is why do we constantly desire and anger I believe is what Krishna said the reason is is because we're stupid and we've been stupid for a really long time that's the only answer you know it's just a fact (laughs) what can we say about it it's like it seemed like a good idea at the time to develop these habits these habits of worldliness, these habits of material reliance on things, this idea that less energy is going to be more comfortable, the whole, the whole concept of the subconscious mind, of the subconscious, the way Swami talks about subconscious, superconscious, and conscious, the whole reality of the subconscious is that happiness comes from putting out less energy. And the whole concept of the superconscious is the more aware and the more we become a channel for the eight manifestations of God one of which is energy and power that's where our freedom comes from from awareness and energy versus unawareness and low energy and Kurukshetra is us and so this constant desire to do less to try to get an elevated result for an unelevated amount of energy it's delusion it's called maya really and that's what Maya is Maya says low energy is more comfortable lack of awareness is better superconscious says the opposite and all you're describing is sadhana 
I mean, we have to do sadhana. Every, every spiritual epic, every hero's tale, it's always a war. You know, in the w- women's movement, they try to say it's because they were all written by men, but that's not true. The reason it's a war is because it is a war. Anybody who pays attention realizes that it's a constant struggle. You know, you always, there's always the pull toward subconscious and towards superconscious. One of the most interesting elements about Swamiji was that he did not enjoy low energy. I love low energy, you know? I love having a full day off when I can just read a novel or, you know, it's just like I enjoy low energy. I like to rest in low energy. Swami never did. I mean, low energy for him was high energy for me. I mean, it's not that he never rested or never, you know, watched a movie or sat with friends and had tea. But it was notable. He did not enjoy, he did not enjoy sinking into unconsciousness, even to the extent that he wouldn't take Novocaine, and except in the most extreme conditions when he had to have a medical procedure, he would, he would, not, he would refuse to go unconscious. He would insist on a local anesthesia. Even he had his hips replaced with uh, spinal because he just refused to go unconscious. He, he, he wouldn't give in to that. I mean, that's, that's really quite a... It, it took me a long time to really appreciate what I was looking at. And what that, that's called victory. And there's no shortcut. This is what I say when I talk here. This is the American question. Isn't there a shortcut? Isn't there an easier way? Why is it such a struggle? I actually... <laughs> not, not my shining hour, but I actually went to Swami once and I was struggling with something or another and I was just tired of it and he was, he was sitting at a desk and I sat in front of him and I said I think I was crying it seemed like always telling the stories like I'm crying maybe I was, maybe I wasn't but I think I was oh Swamiji if life weren't so hard it would be easier <laughs> he just, I mean he just, it's, it was like he had no response there was like you could see he couldn't think of any response to have to that. So he just existed. He just sat there existing and just let me hear myself. There was just silence in the room while my words just kind of reverberated off the walls. What was he supposed to say to me? There was nothing he could say. So we just sat there for a while and then the phone rang. And Swami's never so rude as to answer the phone when somebody's with him, but he just picked up the phone. Because <laughs> it was like, what else could he do? So he just started talking on the phone and I left. And I've, I've told you a couple of stories like that, that these are very rare. Usually with Swami was very courteous, but what can you say? If life weren't so hard, it would be easier. If Maya didn't exist, we'd all be self-realized. Why did God make the world this way? That's also Vivekananda's answer. All the saints say, it's okay. And even those of us who persevere on the path, which I'll count all of you among us, your common sense begins to show you that this is better. That when I gain mastery over myself, I really have something. Whereas if I am just lucky and I'm not challenged, I never have anything. But when I gain mastery over myself, I really have something worth having. And then therefore you can direct that any way you want to direct it. That's why great artists, good artists, are often good in many fields. You know, Sarah Bernhardt was a great actress and she became very good at painting and then she became very good at sculpting you know, because she knew how to concentrate and master herself 
And so with us, when we learn to master the challenges that come to us, then we are the masters. We're, we're no longer, Maya doesn't hold us anymore, Tamoguna doesn't hold us anymore. That's freedom. Otherwise, we're just tossed like leaves on the, on the river. And it's just a matter of time before we get tumbled around and something awful happens, if not in this incarnation, in the next one, because eventually we have to find where our power really is and we have to stop resisting. So I'm going to actually read the third question here because this is into it. What is the difference between contentment and complacency and how does one protect oneself from getting complacent? I actually, I got this one in advance and I had to sort of think about this for a minute. Contentment is one of, is it either the yama or the ni, yama, I never can remember. I have to always look at the list if I ever have to teach it. But I know it's one of the big, it's one of the big ones. You know, and it's actually, it's, I'm glad the person asked this question because contentment and complacency are two entirely different things. Complacency is everything is just good enough, so why would I ever want to make it any better? You know, and it's what I call the preference for the known misery. It's like no ambition, it's not too terrible, I'll just keep on as I am, could be worse, you know, at least there's no disasters at the moment or whatever you might think. Complacency is just, you know, there's, it's, again, we look to the saints. Saints are exceedingly ambitious for God. The saints are exceedingly ambitious for God-realization. They're not ego-ambition, but they're divinely ambitious. When I asked Swamiji a question about reincarnation, it wasn't exactly the question I asked, but the answer was brilliant. He said, what causes us to reincarnate is longing or regret. Many of you have heard me say this already. Regret for what we lost too soon, what we did not understand at the time and didn't appreciate, longing for what we don't have, we wish we have, you know, if you die in a state with either of those feelings whirling around in you, that, be, that lodges in your chakras, and we're in the astral world, and we're only able to be there for a certain period of time before we get drawn back. When Swami said that, I said, Well, Swamiji, I could repeat the first ten years at Ananda in a heartbeat. I said, It was heaven on earth when we were so poor and so isolated and so small and intimate, I, I just loved it. He said, he went through like this, oh, that's different. He said, that's the soul's desire for freedom. He said, that liberates, it doesn't bind. So what we have to understand is complacency is having no ambition. No ambition to expand our awareness. We just get complacent. Whatever is, is good enough. We forget there's a high mountain to climb. We lose touch with the vibration of divine awareness, and so we forget that we're striving for anything. That's what it is to become complacent. We forget that there's a higher mountain than the one we're sitting on. Contentment, as one of uh, Patanjali's you know, primary virtues, is that we don't rebel against circumstances. But to not rebel is not the same as not to respond. I'm content with the fact that God has bankrupted me and now I have to start all over again at this stage of my life and all my life's work has been washed away. I'm content because it must be my karma and there must be something good for me at the end of this. 
to, to, be, to be discontent, to say, why, why me, why did this happen? I've done so many Kriyas, and by my calculation, that number of Kriyas should have brought me a better circumstance than this one, you know? It's a very Vaishya attitude, where we're always weighing and measuring and talking about what we deserve. Contentment is content with whatever God sends me, and then I will respond to it. You see, this goes back to, why is it so hard? And contentment is also to be because it is, because this is Maya. And no saint who ever made real spiritual progress ever said it wasn't worth it. And honestly, no sadhaka who ever has really applied himself to it doesn't see that it was worth it. It was really worth it. Look how much I learned. I certainly feel that way about myself. I've had lots of times where I wished it wasn't so hard. If it wasn't so hard, it would have been easier. But if it hadn't been so hard, I would have nothing at this point. I mean, I believe when I was, I don't, and now you have to forgive me because I've been talking so much in different cities. Um, when Swami asked me to write that book when I was 24 years old, and I didn't finish it till I was seven, I didn't publish it till I was 72, which is now, and all the time in between, which was a lot of years, until a couple of years ago when I finally got a grip on it and really started writing it and loving the process of writing it. I was, I was like a, a bug pinned to the wall by that request. It, it forced me to face every weakness, every fear, every inability, every karmic block that I had. And I didn't like it. I kept wanting that book to go away. I mean, I kept wanting him to relieve me of the duty. But he never would. Even the, actually one time he did. But it was reverse psychology. And actually that was a very telling moment. He said, look, this doesn't look like it's happening. Maybe you should just give up. And when he said that to me, I said, no, like that. And I thought, whoa, listen to me. That was a big moment for me. No, I'm not going to give up. I'll die trying. But it was worth it. And that's what we find out. And I don't complain. I'm content with the challenges that were given to me because they were the right ones. You understand the difference? It's very, very important. So there's, just, there's no relationship between complacency and contentment. It's a complete misunderstanding to think contentment uh, means passivity. It doesn't at all. It means divine acceptance. It means courage in the face of obstacles. It means I'm not going to complain, I'm just going to do it. I'm content with my lot in life, which is to conquer these weaknesses. Complacency is, who cares? I'll just die the way I am and then just pick it up some other time. You know, the problem is, it's always now. We think the future is not now. But when the future is on us, it's now. And it's no more fun then than it is now. You understand? That's how I've really dealt with a lot of tough things. I say to myself, man, I'm really not happy seeing it this time and I never want to see it again. You know, one time is too many. And if I don't face it now, I'm just going to have to face it later. So what good will it do me? I mean, these are things that you, you, you very slowly, you just keep at it until they sink deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into your awareness so they actually just become your view of reality. There was a seminar that this man did, Stephen Levine, for people who had terminal illnesses. He would have weekends with them. And when they would come, terminal illnesses, he, he didn't work with elderly people who were 
he worked with people who felt they were dying early. And he would have them make, the first list they would make would be all the things that they were going to miss out on because they were going to die. You know, I'll never walk my, I'll never see my daughter's wedding, I'll never hold my grandchildren, I won't go old with my spouse, all the things, I'll never see Paris, whatever it might be. And then, and that's one list, and everybody weeps and feels terrible and feels that's what they have to deal with. Then this is the, and you make this other list, and this is the list that all the things I get to avoid because I'm going to die early. <laughs> yeah, and that's a very interesting list. When uh, I heard about that exercise, I, I tried to do the second list. It was very interesting. There were certainly a lot of things I would like to avoid. Well, not so much anymore, but then there were. But I realized, what's the point? I know I just couldn't commit myself to wanting to avoid them. Because all I would have to do is face it again. So what's the point? And I was very pleased with myself when I realized that's how I felt. Because I, I didn't, that wasn't an affirmation. It was just, what's the point? I have to, I'm going to have to do it, and when it comes, it's going to be now. So why not do it now? I'm content with what God sends me. I will face it as best I can. If I fail, that's fine, because that's the best I could do. And then I'll try it again later. Okay, does that make sense? These are very important points. You have to practice when it's easier so that it becomes your instinctive response. Yes? Well, that last regards contentment. Uh-huh. Oh, when you face a challenge, mm-hmm. you're content about it, but at the same time, your ego boosts that, yes, you have overcome something. Isn't it contradictory, again, on your spiritual path? Well, you're, you're saying that your ego is boosted, but your ego doesn't have to be boosted at all. You're, you're, that's like Swami saying to me, my desire to be part of, to do my first ten years at Ananda, that's the desire to be free. The ego doesn't, I mean, if the ego grabs it, then you're setting yourself up for more karma. If, if one genuinely masters something, part of what happens is that you begin to realize how little the ego plays, part the ego plays, and how much we align ourselves with divine energy and then grace lifts us. And this is not something, you can talk about this, but you really don't know it till it happens to you. And you realize you worked as hard as you could to do it, you put everything you had into it, and in the end it had nothing to do with you. All that we do when we work that hard is we restrain our egoic confusion so that we can align ourselves with divine energy and then divine energy moves us. That's why everyone talks about the grace of God. You don't know what other words to use. But the grace of God comes to us, is magnetized to us, because we have done our best to align ourselves with it. Master gave the formula, 25% the devotee's effort, 25% the guru on his behalf, 50% the grace of God. But that, when you experience it, it feels like 100% the grace of God or 100% the grace of Guru because all I did was not mess it up. Right? And if ego grabs it, you're just setting yourself up for another, another round. So this is, these are all the enormous subtleties of the spiritual path. But one begins to feel it. Swamiji himself talked about when he was a young monk, and he had a lot of intellectual pride, so he worked hard on being more humble. And then he said he realized he was feeling proud of his humility. <laughs> and then he also talked about 
how he was working hard on devotion and he was very pleased with the fact that he developed devotion and then Master said, see how I've changed him. And then Swami realized where it had actually come from. These are real experiences. These are not philosophical ideas. These are just as you as you practice these become just the way it is. And you see it in the lives of others. Swamiji, some people thought he was even egotistical because he would make these long lists of all he'd accomplished. You know, he'd come and give a satsang, he'd been away for a month, and he'd have a list of the books he'd written, the music he'd done, the lectures he'd given, the problems he'd solved. And he was just like a little child. He would read off the list, and sometimes he would say to his secretary, Lakshman, have I forgotten anything? You know, like this. And, you know, people would think that he was arrogant, but he wasn't arrogant at all, because as soon as any suggestion of that would come, he'd say, oh, you just put your attention at the spiritual eye, and Master will do it. And he would just constantly say that to us as if that was so obvious. That, yes, anything can happen if you just put your attention at the spiritual eye and let Master do it. And if you do it a different way, it doesn't work as well, that's a fact. You work against your own well-being. But, but you learn that by trial and error. You know, you just, you make mistakes. I was talking to someone yesterday about some serious problems that a person can have on the spiritual path. He was sort of saying, well, how do I deal with it? I said, well, you have 30 years to fail. You know, I'm 30 years older than the man I was talking to. I said, you just make 30 years of mistakes and then finally you're done. (laughs) But that is, you have to have the courage to just throw yourself into it, notice that it didn't work, figure out why it didn't work, and then start over again. That's sadhana. If life were easier, if life weren't so hard, it would be easier. Yeah. Another question? Any other? Yes. Um, Ashwati, I would like to um, ask you something along the lines of forgiveness. And I do mention, I do recollect that you uh, mentioned that I think all of us have this nagging feeling all the time that somebody owes me an apology. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if everyone has it. I'm speaking for myself, but yes. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of us do. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm gonna, uh, I need to know more about it um, in the workplace uh, context, not necessarily in our lives, but yeah, definitely in our workplace, where um, you know a lot of uh, your colleagues or your uh, you know, people you work with, uh, your manager, etc., are maybe doing you wrong, but you want to forgive, um, but it just becomes very, very tough. And while uh, Ramakrishna Paramahansa said that, you know, a snake need not bite, but it can hiss. Somewhere you need to know where to hiss and where to bite. So it's just, it's just so tough sometimes to forgive and right. draw the line. I think part of the problem is the word forgive. I don't think forgive, I, I don't, I've never found the word forgive very helpful. Um, <laughs> Swamiji, at different times, also repudiates the word forgive, although he's also used it. So I don't want to put it on him, but at various times he's also repudiated it. He's repudiated the word surrender sometimes too, although he also uses it. Surrender sounds like your back is against the wall, you're going to lose anyway, so you're going to try to turn it into a victor, victory by saying, I surrender. He said, what you really want is you want is self-offering. You want to master yourself and then offer it to God. You don't want to be so defeated that you have to give in. That's the word surrender. Forgiveness to me, especially in the work context, um, 
Forgiveness always, to me, and maybe this is my own pitfall, there's just too much ego possibility in the word forgiveness. You're kind of a terrible person, you've really done awful things, but I'm a good person, so I forgive you. You know, and it's like, you're, you still have the upper hand, you still are the, are the good one, and there's still the bad one, but you've been so... Now, I mean, I know there's another way to say it, so I don't really want to go too far, but this is what happens when... So I've never found the word forgiveness all that helpful, and I'll, now I'll talk, tell you how Swami talks about it when he's not recommending it. He says what you really want to do is you want to accept reality. Because you need to accept reality before you'll know how to respond appropriately to it. So if somebody that you're working with, and I have to, you know, full disclosure here, I moved to Ananda Village when I was 24 and I've never worked outside the ashram since. So I have no real experience. I had a few little jobs for a few years before that. So I know the complexity of what you're working with and I've never had to live through it. However, I have had enough karmic incidents in my life. But it may just be true that somebody who's working with you is out to get you. And they're not a nice person and there's no common ground of being truth seekers. There's no guru by relationship. There's no possibility of appealing to their ideals. They could be completely self-interested and unscrupulous. And that's just the way they are. So what are you forgiving? You're forgiving them for not being more spiritually advanced than they are? It's, it's you know, wh who are you? I mean, you're not, we're not the guru. We're not able to liberate them from this. What you're, what you're looking at is, wow, this is what I'm dealing with. And it's, it's a little bit the contentment issue. It's like, this is what I'm dealing with. And what I have to do is I have to accept reality before I'm going to be able to deal with reality. Otherwise, I'm always just confused about what I'm supposed to do. And what, what we want in all circumstances is to respond appropriately. And appropriate is a very extremely helpful word on the spiritual path. Because it's not necessarily spiritual to let people take advantage of you, People have people do dishonest things, to have people manipulate you into a, a bad position, and then you just forgive them. That's not necessarily spiritual at all. Sometimes we have to be warriors. Sometimes we have to stand up. Sometimes we have to say this is not acceptable. And we have to say it either in a public context or a private one or whatever it might be. But you can't figure out what's appropriate unless you actually know what's going on. And then there's no question of forgiveness or not. It's just given that this is who this person is, then this is my appropriate response. Where, where we get caught is where we're just constantly feeling that people ought to be different than they are. In Education for Life, Swami says the goal of education and the goal of life is what he calls true maturity. And then he describes that as the ability to relate to realities other than one's own. So you may be a very honorable person and that kind of manipulation is just appalling to you. But it's his reality or her reality. They think it's a good idea and they're going to use it, keep using it and keep trying it because they think it's a good idea. They think it's going to work. So you have to relate to that reality. Now, what is the appropriate response to that reality depends on many things like how, who has more power? 
what's at stake if you just throw yourself into this and you don't have the power to actually overcome, whether or not you have the self-control to deal with this in a mature manner, what you feel inside your heart is what your lesson is in this issue. And then if you're capable, you could think what would help the other person, which is the ideal response is how can I be helpful? But what we have to understand is they are important, but they're not more important than you. We're all equal before God. So to martyr yourself so that they can run wild is not necessarily dharma, but to just fight them because you want to is not necessarily dharma either. You have to ask what is going to be the most helpful. And then you have to balance that with common sense. What am I capable of? What am I capable of enduring? How much sacrifice can I do joyfully? At what point do I just have to you know, draw a line in the sand and take my chances? It, and, and at Ananda we have a principle which is where there is dharma, there is victory. And dharma means that action which leads to higher consciousness for oneself above all. And so if one does that which is in harmony with dharma, which is in the direction of my own salvation, then it will always work out. That doesn't mean it will always work out neatly, nicely. That doesn't mean that the movie will end happily and your, you know, your terrible co-worker will suddenly fall on his knees in gratitude. He may manipulate to get you demoted or fired. I mean, that could happen. It's, why, it, why wouldn't it, you know? Just a moment. Um, there was wait, there was another thought I wanted to have there. Hold on for a second. Oh, anyway, I lost it. I lost the rest of it. But you see, you see what the issue. Oh, I wanted to go back to the concept of acceptance versus forgiveness. You know, it's it. Oh, people owing you an apology. See what happens in in, in my own syndrome. I everybody has attachments. You know, to something. I'm I'm not attached to certain things that other people are more attached to. When I was 15, I realized for example, that fashion was only enforced by embarrassment. <laughs> and that if you weren't embarrassed, you could go out on the street wearing anything you wanted. <laughs> and it was a small thing, but it was a, it was a realization in my heart that I could, I could set myself free from a lot of things if I just wasn't self-conscious about it. So everybody has different attachments. My attachment is to my ideas. I really like my ideas. I think they're better than most people's. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a creative artist type, which is a creative artist type likes, and that's why Swami put me, put me to be a writer. Because a writer is, is very free. You can just, it's better even than a public speaker, because when you're speaking, they're all of you, and I have to relate to you. <laughs> I mean, I'm not objecting, but you understand. I'm, I'm trying to answer your questions. Where when I'm writing, I can just do whatever I want to do. And I, and I also have developed over many years a fear, over many lifetimes, a fear that if people don't do it my way, then something catastrophic will happen. And God knows where that came from, but I have it. So I, I fight a lot for my ideas. Swami has scolded me on many occasions and basically told me truth really can just make its way on its own. It doesn't need you, you know, out in front of it carrying the banner all the time. You know, give other people a chance. 
So as a consequence, I, I have this tendency to feel that people aren't listening to me and they ought to listen to me. And then we get, end up in altercations. Oh, these are, this is not just this life, this is many incarnations. But I have always held this thought that I was right. So it, it came to me actually when I was in seclusion once and I was meditating and we often meditate by trying to offer ourselves into the light. And it crossed my mind that instead of offering myself into the light, I should open myself to the light and allow Divine Mother to come into me, to love me, really. It was very interesting because as soon as I tried to do that, I could feel that I had a very strong barrier in my heart. And you see, when you're, when you're trying to let Divine Mother into you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to let your vibrations merge. This is why I was saying we have to lift ourselves to a higher vibration. So I'm trying to lift myself to the, to the reality of unconditional divine love, but I, there's an anchor in my heart. And that anchor is, I realized, was all these vrittis of resentment and disappointment and attachment and all the things, all the times that I didn't accept reality. You know, I just didn't accept that this is what really happened. I wasn't content with what God had given me. And because of my particular nature, I gradually got that down to somebody owes me an apology. I was right and they didn't listen and they should apologize to me. I was right and they didn't understand me, they should apologize to me. And that's what it, it felt like. And I can, you know, even remember those situations, some in this life, some in past lives. But it wasn't a question of forgiving them, really. It was just accepting that, you know, this is what happened. Why am I still holding on? Nobody's going to apologize to me. And what difference would it make if they did at this point? Then I would just get to say, ha, I'm right. And then I would just start the whole cycle rolling down the, the hill again. So what we really want to be is, we want to be free. We don't really want to be right. We want to be free. And the only way we can be free is to accept what is. You know, that you know, bad things happen and have happened and I've caused as many as I've received. It's just the way it is. People wouldn't be treating me this way if I hadn't treated somebody else this way. What can I learn from it? So the other part you have to accept, you see, is, oh, this, you know, I'm supposed to learn something from this. Recently, people treated me in ways I thought was very unkind. But I, re I just had to honestly say, I've been unkind to a lot of people in my life. Because I've just been so busy with my own creative ideas that I didn't have any time to be nice. So now people are not being nice to me. Why should I be surprised? And so I didn't have to forgive them. I just had to see that their response in their context was perfectly normal. And they chose me because I needed it. So I didn't have to rise up and be the, the good one. I just thought, this is all perfectly fair. It's not fun, and I have to respond appropriately, but it's perfectly fair. There's nothing, there's nothing to forgive. It just is what it is. Does that help? But it's challenging. Oh yes, if life weren't so hard, it would be easier. And how can we just know what we're supposed to do and then have such a struggle against doing it? because that's how he made it. I think it's a really bad idea. Master actually argued with Divine Mother. 
Why must you teach your children through suffering? That's what he said. So I figure if Master could object, we have a right to object. But uh, once we register our complaints, you notice that nobody's listening. <laughs> but I think I, I say it like I have a contract about how life is supposed to be, and I have it all written out. You know, I've, I've gotten it double checked by three lawyers. It's all just absolutely perfect and I with a flourish I've signed it at the bottom and I have multiple copies and I'm waving it at life all the time and then I notice that there's no other signature on it but me (laughs) that no part of the universe has ever agreed with my plan but me and then I think what am I doing it's not going to it's really simple it's very simple it doesn't work that's all I was talking, this is, not, this is not a light subject, but I was talking to someone who was talking about suicide. You know, they were so depressed. I said, well, you know, the problem is it won't work. If it worked, it would be just fine. But all the pain you cause people, if you do that, it'll all just follow you. And you'll just have to work it out later. The other side of it is, in case people that you know have committed suicide, it's just a mistake. And it causes a certain amount of suffering but that's because of what mistakes do. But it eventually works itself out. So the problem with wrong thinking is that you get to suffer. And at a certain point, the effort, the effort required to lift yourself into right vibration is less awful than continuing as you are. And you have to have that tipping point. That's why you can't make anybody get on the spiritual path. And you can't bully yourself into being better than you are. You have to have that tipping point. That's where when I was making out this list of things I could avoid if I died early, not that I have a terminal illness, I just couldn't seriously commit myself to any of them. Because the little short-term possibility of a few years of respite is worth nothing because they're just going to come due. And when they come due, I'm not going to want them then either. And so there comes a point where you're willing to face it. That's something something I've learned over the last years. I was not like that when I started on the spiritual path. I was trying really hard to find a a way that... I mean, I actually had a word was... I had a conversation with Swami where I told him that he used the word challenge too much. Nobody wants challenges, I said. He didn't say anything at all. He just continued to use the word challenge. (laughs) Now I use the word challenge quite freely. And just sort of, these are interesting things that happen. Oh, I remember I used to not like this word. This word used to scare me. It doesn't scare me now. Because, you know, God has pinned me to the wall and I've had to face it. And then I've realized, no, this is actually, this is freedom. This isn't punishment, this is freedom. But that's why out of a thousand, only one is even interested in the spiritual path. And about a th- out of a thousand who get on the spiritual path, only one of them realizes God. Master said, our percentage is higher. <laughs> How much higher, I don't think he ever said. <laughs> but that's why. So the other side of that is be nice to yourself. You know, we have to just, I talked to him, just accept yourself, just be who you are. If it takes you a few more incarnations, that's not a big deal. You know, we can only be as good as we are. My topic tomorrow night is 
how we can be a Jivan Mukta in this life. Let's see what I say. <laughs> All right. A- any other? Yes. Okay. Um, how do you, if you know that there's a lesson to be learned uh-huh. in, in a situation, you're not clear what the lesson is. Right. But you know, you get the bits of it, you know, right. because the pattern is similar. Right. And the suffering is similar. Right. Uh, but you're not clear about what it is that you have to learn and what it is that you have to change or stand up for for this to be done. Right. Um, Yeah, we often have no idea which way is forward, Um, or we don't know, you know, we can't figure out which door we're supposed to go through. This is where a regular practice of meditation is helpful, a regular practice of devotion to the Guru is helpful, because then you're not quite so alone. This is the practice when it's easier, the more, uh, that's why satsang is very helpful. Because a lot of times when people are struggling, if they stay away from their guru bhais, they stay away from the spiritual place as a way of protecting their confusion and their negativity, actually. So if you just go into an atmosphere where there is a, a clearer, stronger energy, it's going to spill over onto you by having cultivated spiritual friendships with people whose wisdom you trust. You can ask them things in such a way that they may actually answer if you have uh, practiced being open, so that's all the groundwork for it. You 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 keep asking Divine Mother. Um, my my way of doing it is really simple. What am I supposed to be learning? You actually just keep asking the question, but you don't ask it in in a hysterical rajasic way. <laughs> I mean that the way you. You could say this phrase two different ways. God, why are you doing this to me? Or you could say, God, why are you doing this to me? And if you don't have a clear answer, just keep asking the question. Then in between, you know, the the phrase I always want to use is you hold yourself as calmly as you can at the center. Which is instead of running around making phone calls and just trying to, you know, make it happen. This is where Rajas just sort of makes you start rushing around doing things. You just try to hold yourself calmly, um, especially internally. And, and just as much as you can, try to resist the impulse to come to a quick and final conclusion. And when you ever hear yourself saying, now I know why this is happening, this is happening to me because this is the pattern, you know, whenever you hear that sort of like, let me just paste an answer on this because the uncertainty is frightening me. Just come back to, gee, I have no idea. I really don't understand. When I was talking about people being unkind to me and my realizing that I had been unkind, I didn't, that came to me, I, I was very upset with the way people were treating me. And it, but I also, there was just a piece of me that knew there had to be a good reason and then it just came to me because I was sincere. There has to be a good reason why this is happening. And then it just popped into my head, you know, what was what was really going on. And then I just, again, forgiveness wasn't an issue. I know why I'm unkind. It was no mystery to me why people were unkind. I could think of all the unkind things I'd done and every one of them made sense to me at the time. 
So of course what they were doing would make sense to them. I mean, it just became, but I just had to keep asking the question. I didn't give in to everybody's so terrible but me, you know. So that's what I mean by holding yourself still. It doesn't mean that you don't also run those tapes, but you stop them as soon as you can. And you realize that you're having a tantrum, that you're not really coming to truth. Does that make sense? Rant is the word that we use. Sometimes I like to rant, <laughs> rant, just rant about things, but as soon as I'm done, I don't believe my own rants. I just know that I'm doing it. It's like when you're sick and you vomit. You know, it's just like you have to spill it out, but you don't believe it. Does that help? But it's a very good question you ask, and the actual the answer to it is humility. We just have to remain very humble. I think this is what's happening, but I'm not sure. If we're very humble, we can learn. If we get too certain, and the ego gets involved, and I never, it always really terrifies me when people say, well, I've really learned my lesson on this. Whoa, oh dear, probably not. So, you know, when I, you just learn a little at a time, and then you remain open for the rest of it. Yes. Master said circumstances are neutral. Right. Could you just elaborate Forgive me, I came home with this big runny nose, which is about as unattractive as it could possibly be, but here we all are. I'll do something about it before you see me again. Um, circumstances are always neutral. It depends whether they are happy or sad, Master said, depends on your frame of mind which is, let's see, the ego defines good as pleasurable and easy. The ego defines good as that nobody I love is suffering. In other words, nobody's learning anything. We're all just cocooned down in what we already know. That's how the ego thinks of as good. And the ego thinks it's bad when you or people around you are suffering because you have karmic lessons to learn. We think that's bad. So where do those words actually come from? You know, do we really want people to remain in delusion forever and never get the opportunity to grow and be free? Do we ourselves really want to remain in delusion forever and never get the chance to grow and be free? And so it's just, it, 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 those are, I mean, those are really challenging questions. When my parents were at the end of their lives, my mother had Parkinson's for 15 years. Parkinson's is a pretty hairy experience, very difficult. The last couple of years, uh, my father, I, he just sort of had enough, so he took a little bit of a, a mental holiday. He didn't get, he always knew who we were, but he just turned off about half of his IQ, so he just wouldn't have to struggle with my mother anymore. At first, when all of that was happening, I kept trying to stop it. I kept trying to fix it. I kept trying to interrupt it. I kept trying to take over their lives and make it different. They did not appreciate that. I was trying so hard to make it all right for them, and they were not happy with me. Finally occurred to me, first of all, on a higher level that I was operating on, it was their karma, and they knew it. My parents were not spiritual in the, in the self-realization way. 
So they had no idea about karma or anything like that. But they'd spent their whole lives working up to this, you know, wonderful opportunity at the end of their lives to learn all kinds of things that they hadn't learned before. And I was so busy trying to prevent them from learning them. And I had to ask myself, who am I helping? And I realized it was just me, because it was inconvenient for me to have them be like that. And I just completely flipped around, and my prayer became, Divine Mother, whatever you want them to learn, help them to learn it. And help me to help them learn it, and help me to have the courage to help them learn it. Because it was all my fear, too. I mean, that was my lesson in it, whatever you're trying to teach me, which is to trust that God has it in control, and actually even literally, to respect my parents enough to believe that they can face their own karma. Like, that's fine. They're, they're full divine souls, just like me. They get a right to their own karma. So circumstances are neutral. Circumstances are there for us to learn, whether we're happy or sad about it. Now, that doesn't mean that we enjoy other people's suffering. And so my prayer for my parents was very intense. Divine Mother, whatever it is you're trying to teach them, I'm telling you, you really need to get on with it. You know, because this is tough. But my mother, about 13 years into the 15 years, she said to me like this, I hate to admit it, but this disease has been the making of me. (laughs) And it's true. She developed willpower and discipline and determination. She developed enormous positive qualities that she really needed. And she would never have gotten them in any other way. So was it bad? Was it good? Just depends on whether you're looking at it from Divine Mother's point of view or the ego's point of view. Ego meaning that part of us which thinks less energy, less awareness, awareness, the better. No, you have to practice when it's easier. If you're caught in traffic, do you rant against it? If somebody you're working with doesn't come through for you, do you rant against it or do you just say, okay, let's go forward? It's an everyday practice. That's why the spiritual path is so much fun. You know, you always have something to do. Really, it's never boring. You always have something to do. I mean, that's why I love it. That's why I've been 50 years on it. And it's still just as interesting to me today as it was when I first got the book from Vivekananda when I was 18. Yeah. You had a question. Pardon me? My question to you is, uh, what are the things in your life uh, you thought you could have learned it much earlier in your life? <laughs> How about everything? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, I, I could not possibly have learned anything one second sooner than I learned it. Just because I was stupid. <laughs> you know, it's just astonishing to me when something is clear to you how you could not have known it before. But it's vibration. It's a vibration of consciousness. We, we gradually refine our vibration, and as our vi- vibration refines, we literally perceive realities that we could not see before. Um, if, if Swami were sitting in this room, if Jesus Christ were in this room, if Lord Buddha were in this room, he would look at us and he would see something else. Master said once in one of the books, I think it's in the path, Master says to the disciples, if you could see yourselves as I see you, 
you would see that you're nothing but radiant light. So, I, you know, I can't see it because my vibration is too dense for me to see it. So I couldn't see that I was being unkind because my vibration was too dense. My fear for my own destiny had me too much in its grip. As Swami said, she, she doesn't mean to be unkind, she just forgets that you're there. <laughs> Which, I mean, he understood my heart. I wasn't really unkind, I just forgot they were there. Of course, they didn't forget they were there. But I couldn't, no, I couldn't see that they were there until my fears had settled enough that I could let go of myself. And I, I don't think I could have done that a minute sooner than I have ever done it. And see, that's contentment without being complacent. Which is, I'm content with the fact that I'm stupid. And I'm still stupid, and I'm looking forward to being less stupid. Uh, but I'm not complacent about it. I just know that this is the way it is. I wasted a lot of energy, guilt, fear, anxiety, about what was. Same story. You know, self-forgiveness, if you want to call it that, but just accepting, this is who I am. Why should I worry about it all the time? I mean, Swamiji did his best with me, so really, if I could have learned any faster, believe me, he was working on it. And I mean, he was working on I look back, you know, I see countless things where he, 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 he dropped the seed in, and then it took me years before, oh, that's what he meant. Swamiji said that about being with Master. To the end of Swami's life, he was still learning from the three and a half years he spent with Master. And, oh, that's what he meant. I thought, isn't that wonderful? Because it's infinite. So until we're infinite, we'll just keep learning. I mean, that's the good news. Once we change our perspective a little bit, but that's sadhana. Everything is sadhana. Okay, good question. I think that that's a pardon me. You are referring to the question: Why did the God create the world? So say, why did God create the world? No, what no, a, you are talking about that? Just right. So can you elaborate? And what is the logical answer for that? <laughs> Actually, Swamiji had a beautiful answer. He said, um, "It's the nature of joy to want to share." And he used, Swami's way was to always use very concrete examples. If any of you discover a new restaurant and you think the food is really wonderful, you're going to tell the people around you, aren't you? You, you see a new movie. You see a new store open up that has really nice clothes at good prices. You tell people about it, don't you? Why do you do that? Because we feel better when what makes us happy, we give that happiness to others. And, and the thing about the divine I believe it's in the, I don't know if it's a Greek saying or if it's in the Bible, as above, so below, <coughs> meaning that God is not different than us. It's just more of it. <laughs> so this impulse that we have, the joy expands by being shared, that's one of the explanations why God made creation. He wanted to enjoy himself through many. As I think Master or Swami said, he doesn't enjoy himself through very many, but the potential is there. After that, I sort of feel like I don't know why God made the world. I don't know why he made it so difficult. 
but I have learned that certain actions on my part diminish my suffering. And that's actually all I need to know because my actions would not be different if I could answer that question. If I could say why he did it, I'm still imprisoned in the same way and I still need to get out. So I'm very practical. I'm interested in big questions, but if I can't answer them and I know what to do in the morning, I can go forward. A lot of times people use, as I said earlier, a demand for an un- demanding an answer to an unanswerable question is a way to avoid having to actually do anything. And I'm not accusing you of that, but one should always stop for a moment and ask, what is my motivation here? And then see what to do next. Or, I won't understand the answer to that question until I increase my intuition. So I need to do those things that will give me better intuition. So then you come back to sadhana in the same way. We've used up our hour, so I'm happy to answer more questions, but I think we should um, close the evening. And if anyone has something that they really need to have answered, you could ask me now, or I think we're going to do this next week. We'll do this next Thursday also. Okay? Is that okay? Pardon me? Thank you. Thank you all very much.